This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name's Mark Vance, and today I actually want to dive into a subject that is not really... um, It's not really fun to talk about. It's not really easy to talk about. I want to talk a little bit about the subject of abuse, and particularly, I want to talk about abuse of power, or what some people might call um, the power of spiritual abuse, even, or an abuse of authority that particularly is attached to a position of church leadership. And here's the reason why I want to talk about it. I don't know if want is the right word, why I think it's a necessary topic for people who are in the church and in church leadership. Um, One is just that I think unless we take the time to try to understand what authority and power are about, we do run a great risk of misusing that which God has designed as a good gift. And I've been reminded of this recently. I've been listening to what I think many people who listen to podcasts in the Christian world have listened to, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And I've had lots of thoughts about that as a church leader. Um, Lots of thoughts back on how God used even the flawed ministry of Mars Hill to impact me, but yet also looking at how it seems like the position of pastoral authority was misused there. The other thing, though, is even when you use the term of abuse, I've been a pastor now for almost 15 years, I would say the first 10 years of pastoral ministry, I don't know that I ever even heard the terminology of spiritual abuse or abuse of power used. And now, um, in the last five years of pastoral ministry, it seems like accusations of abuse of power, things like that, are more and more common, and I hear about them a lot more. And so, what I want to do is just reflect a little bit about this. Is this a, a right terminology to use of you? abuse or spiritual abuse, abuse of power, and what is this? And then what's wisdom and how we avoid this inside of the local church? And so, first off, I'm going to use a definition here. I'm going to quote from Michael Kruger, and then I'm going to try to get to some key biblical texts. But Michael Kruger, he's a New Testament scholar from Reformed Theological Seminary. He writes on spiritual abuse, and he says, spiritual abuse or abuse of power in the church is when a spiritual leader Someone like a pastor, an elder, or a head of a Christian organization wields his or her power in such a, a in a position of spiritual authority in such a way that he or she manipulates, domineers, bullies, and intimidates those who are under their authority as a means of accomplishing what they perceive to be a biblical or spiritual goal. What Kruger does there in that definition that I think is really helpful is he he underlines some key biblical categories that take priority over psychological categories when he describes abuse of power, spiritual abuse. He says they're someone who are domineering, bullying, intimidating. They're using a position of power or authority as a means to accomplish. All of those words are Bible words. And so I want to get back to the Bible here because at the core of it, To abuse authority, we have to understand what authority is. And for that, we need to go back to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he came near to his disciples as he's preparing to ascend back to heaven to the Father. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
What you note there is Jesus says, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I rule over absolutely everything now. That authority and power of Jesus, he confers on his church by his spirit and through his word. That's what his commission is all about. It's really our submission to his lordship that confers on us the power and authority of Jesus. That means within the church, our power isn't grounded in our position or in our charisma. It's grounded in the authority Jesus gives us. And therefore, the authority or power Jesus gives comes on his terms. He gives us power through his spirit and by his word. We don't have power apart from what Jesus assigns. I don't have authority. Take the office of pastor. The New Testament never tells me as pastor that I'm allowed to tell people um, how to rule over the medical decisions of their family. I mean, we could say there are some things that are out of bounds regarding killing. You know, euthanasia would be out of bounds because the scripture forbids killing human life. However, I can't tell you whether you should um, use amoxicillin or penicillin or, in other words, I don't have inherent authority as a pastor. I have derived authority as a pastor. Jesus has all authority. He gives me authority to do what he tells me to do. So as a pastor, I can't command beyond what scripture commands, but there is an authority given by Jesus. So this is really important. In order to avoid abusing power, we have to actually first acknowledge that we have it. People in positions of spiritual authority, particularly those who are paid as pastors or appointed as elders, they do hold a weight of authority because Jesus gives his authority to his disciples. So, the scripture goes beyond that and gives some guidelines to those who would wield authority, particularly in the office of pastor or elder. Here's a few key passages. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 5. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. No, God would have you to oversee, to wield authority, but you can't do it out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over. That's a key word here lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but instead being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way you who are younger, be subject, be under the authority of the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'll simply give a couple observations about biblical authority here. Peter exhorts the elders, plural, among you. There are multiple other passages we should go to, but Peter doesn't say, I exhort the one really charismatic leader among you. He exhorts an elder among other elders. There's a plurality in which the power is entrusted and that those who have that power are explicitly told you cannot lord it over. That's actually how spiritual abuse is defined in the scripture. It is lording power over those. Another word here would be domineering, pushing people down, pressing your authority onto them. Here's another key text of scripture, 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy. Verse 1, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, an elder, he desires a noble work. 
An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not one who lacks self-control, not a bully, key word here, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. So interesting. Greed is mentioned multiple times in these texts. You can't do the work of Christian ministry motivated primarily by a desire for money. You'll abuse that position. So watch out for people who are using their platform to get rich off of Christian ministry. That's a warning there. But particularly, there's a way in which you hold the office of elder. It says you must not be a bully, but you have to be gentle. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 and 25 says something very similar. It says the Lord's servant, note that again, our authority What does he call those who would lead in the church? He calls them servants. That's not a position of authority. That's a position under authority. You are the Lord's service. Jesus is the lead pastor of his church. Jesus is the King and Lord. You submit to him. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Again, you can't be a fighter if you're to represent Jesus in a position of authority. All of these texts and many others in the New Testament say there is a right way in which God gives spiritual authority to those who are charged in the church to lead, correct, and challenge, to guide the church. They are to do that as the Lord's servants, as God's representatives, but Because of the position of spiritual authority they're in, there are boundaries that God gives to guard against its abuse. Boundaries like plurality of eldership, proven character over time, even just simply experience. The people are called elders who oversee. Elders, that that word just means older. It, It means not a novice, not someone who's unproven in life. Because in order to steward rightly the spiritual authority and power that Jesus gives to those who would lead in his church, we need to have the character that is necessary to hold that power. The key, the key determiner of position in God's church can never simply be charisma. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter if you have no charisma or personality to lead. There are plenty of people with godly character who don't aspire to the office of elder because they're not able to teach, okay? Because they don't have the biblical qualifications of, uh, for instance, what Romans 12 will call the gift of leadership. If you are called to lead in God's church, you are to lead, but not as a bully, but gentle. Here's my point though. When we become too quick to put a person in a position of authority on the basis of their charisma over their character, we place ourselves into a dangerous position where that person may abuse, improperly use the position of power they have in order to gain something from that position. Okay, so all of this is to say this. In a culture where we see the words abuse of power, spiritual abuse, things like that, I do think that that category is at times appropriate Although I would prefer, actually, we use the biblical words to describe it over the psychological uh, contemporary words to describe it, because often when we link things to biblical words, we come up with biblical solutions. The way the Bible describes it, 
is that spiritual abuse or an abuse of power happens when you yield the position, you use the position of spiritual authority you have to domineer, to lord it over, to bully, to quarrel, to fight, to intimidate, to get your way over other people's way, to advance monetary gain. All of those are examples of biblical examples of abuse of power. Now, let's apply this a little bit and think through a few things, because I think there's some words of caution or wisdom also that we should hear when we kind of wade into this topic of spiritual abuse or abuse of power. The first word of wisdom I want to give as we reflect on this is, I am concerned that while there are appropriate uses of the label abuse, that we're in the middle of a culture that is very quick to label a lot of things as abuse that never were called that. I'm going to cite one thing. This is a article called Concept Creep, Psychology's Expanding Concept of Harm and Pathology. This was written at the University of Melbourne by a PhD student in their School of Psychological Sciences, Nick Haslam. And his kind of core idea in this paper is that many of psychology's concepts have undergone meaning shift in recent years. And he says those concepts follow a consistent trend. Concepts that refer to negative aspects of the human behavior, human experience, have expanded their meaning, so they now encompass a much more broad range of phenomena than was before described. He cites concepts such as abuse, bullying, trauma, mental disorder, addiction, prejudice, and shows how those were used historically. And in each case, in the last kind of decade, those concepts have been expanded and their boundaries have been stretched. He says that what we live in is a culture with an ever-increasing sensitivity to harm and a concept creep that often runs the risk of pathologizing everyday experiences and encouraging a virtuous sense of victimhood. Okay, that's very important to know. Here's what he's saying. We need to be careful about what we would use the word abuse to describe. Let's take, for instance, what happens in a relationship with a friend. The, the Bible says in, in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Think about that. That means friends can say things that damage each other. The, the words can be wounding. They can be harmful. In a certain way, actually any sin that we commit against another person is damaging. When I lie about something to another person, I harm them in a certain way. So it's important to note this, that simply feeling hurt or damaged does not necessarily mean you've been abused because abuse is a pathology. It's a repeated set of behaviors that happen inside of a relationship where power is drastically imbalanced. Abuse necessitates authority being present in one person over another. That's why the biblical texts say to the elders, you cannot lord it among over others. Because where those people are given authority by God, there's the opportunity to use that improperly. When we label all damaging interpersonal sin as abuse, we are overstepping. And what we're doing actually is minimizing the pain of things that are real abuse. There's a real category such as sexual abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, 
abuse of power. When we label everything as that or too many things as that, we're guilty of this concept creep that Nick Haslam speaks of. Okay, here's a second thing I've thought about with this is I think we need to be cautious about choosing to use psychological labels over biblical labels. I'm not saying that the psychological label isn't helpful. What I am saying is the Bible has a category of sins that it, and of words that it describes when people use power wrongly. Words like bullying, lording it over, uh, quarrelsome, quick to anger. When we define sin on biblical terms, what we do is we open ourselves up to biblical remedies and solutions. The biblical remedy to solutions like abuse of power is repentance, which is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior on the part of the person who is committing the sin. And that repentance, that change of behavior leads us to a place where forgiveness and reconciliation of relationship can be a real possibility. When we label a sin, not as a sin, but as a pattern of abuse, what I found is abuse is something in our current cultural moment no, no one can repent of or really ever fully change. It becomes the label one wears, kind of like Hawthorne's scarlet letter. And currently what we demand is if a person is, uh, has abused their power, they now are an abuser. And the current cultural demand is that we publicly call that out so as to keep them from harming or hurting other people. There's a place for that, but my observation is our culture demands justice without any possibility of forgiveness. There are true abuses in people who truly merit the label of abuser, who've engaged over the years in patterns of behavior that are wicked and sinful and damaging. But I think we need to be cautious about quickly rushing to psychological labels where the biblical labels would lead us to the opportunity to pursue repentance that could lead to forgiveness. I'm not saying that we offer people quick fix solution to year-long patterns of sin, years-long patterns of sin. When you have a person who's been a bully over years to someone, I'm not saying they raise their hand and say, I'm sorry for being a bully. Now you have to forgive me. No, 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 no. I'm saying when a pattern of repentant lifestyle has happened, we have the possibility of biblical forgiveness and reconciliation because we use biblical words to describe biblical sins. Here's another thought. I think we need to be cautious and just guard ourselves against our heart's desire to reject biblical authority. When we see authority abused, when we see a parent abuse a child, when you see them physically hurt a child, it can lead you to think all use of parental discipline is therefore wrong. It's an overreaction. When we see the abuse of authority by a person in a spiritual position of power, where they create a legalistic and sick sort of church culture, it can lead us to reject any sort of pastoral authority that is biblical and good. When we see parenting that's harsh and angry and abusive, we want to just say, oh, I don't want to ever be like, but, but keep in mind, when we dismiss all authority is bad, What we're dismissing is not the abuse of authority, but authority itself. Think again of parenting. Parenting that is harsh and angry is wrong. 
but so also is parenting that is neglectful because it doesn't give its children any good and godly boundaries. Children left alone and abandoned are also abused in a certain sense. And so I just want to caution us. There's a spirit out there in our cultural moment that is so cynical about any sort of position of power that it is very quick to label any sort of behavior as abuse of authority. We need to be cautious to not dismiss authority because we've seen it abused. But on the other side, here's another caution. We need to be very cautious about dismissing abuse because people throw the words around too much. Like I'm, I'm going to acknowledge it. I think we live in a cultural moment where people are labeling way too many things as abuse. But at the same point, when someone comes forward with a, with a testimony that they for years have hidden a sense of being demeaned and hurt and harmed, we should be very, very, very slow to just say, well, you're probably too sensitive. No, we first need to first, before you make a judgment about what you're hearing, listen carefully and care well. First, put yourself in a position of an empathetic listener. Before you rush to a judgment, either for or against a matter, listen carefully. Involve others to listen carefully. This is part of what we have to do often as church elders. We have to listen carefully. We have to abide by the biblical admonition that one who presents his case first is almost always right until the other side of a matter is heard. We have to listen with care. We have to care for people. And so just because we live in a cultural moment where people are attaching the label of abuse to far too many things, that doesn't mean there's no such thing as an abuse of power and authority. We have Bible words that help us here. We know that a pastor can go far beyond what the scripture writes and can lord it over people, can domineer, can bully. And so we should be sensitive to the reality that that could happen and guard ourselves against that. And that, that kind of brings me to my final thought, which is the Bible both has words that describe the abuse of spiritual authority, bullying, domineering, etc. But those same concepts, con- pardon me, contexts, biblical contexts, passages that describe the abuse of spiritual authority, often they present a remedy to or a preventative treatment we could use to avoid that pattern of abuse. Here's four key ones that the New Testament highlight often to guard against spiritual abuse. The first is plurality of leadership over a single powerful leader. Peter says, I'm exhorting the elders plural among you. And it's very, very important to know that no one charismatic individual is supposed to have all the authority to do whatever they feel like doing in the life of the church. At Cornerstone, I have a position where I'm called to lead. It's kind of a first among equals in our elder room. But our council of elders hold the authority to hold me as lead pastor in check. They do an annual job review of me. They can fire me and will if I go beyond what the charge is that I have in the scripture. That's an example of plurality of authority. Even at Cornerstone, it's part of the reason why as a lead pastor, I teach about 40% of the time. I know that's an unusual pattern. I don't really know of another church quite like it, but we just feel like guarding the church against any individual who could become the celebrity with all the power helps to safeguard the church 
against the abuse of authority that could happen. It's not the only way, but it's an important one for us. It's central for us, plurality of leadership. The, the second principle the New Testament highlights is recognizing what biblical authority actually allows you to do. You have no right to command people as a pastor to do whatever you want. Your authority doesn't go to those levels. You have the right to call people to obey the Bible. And where the Bible is silent, you cannot yell. You abide by scripture. That's biblical authority. A third guard is to rightly understand power. If all authority has been given to Jesus, the question is, how does Jesus use power? What's Jesus look like? Well, he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. Here's what my power looks like. My yoke is going to be easy. It's the non-yoke sort of yoke. My burden is going to be light. I'm gentle and lowly. I'm humble. You see, a right theology of power says if Jesus has all the authority in the universe, in the upside-down logic of God's kingdom, true authority looks like laying your life down, not asking people to lift you up. And the fourth guard against abuse of authority, I think, has to do with who we put into positions of leadership. The Bible admonishes us, be careful, do not hastily lay your hands on any person. Don't appoint a novice to the position of elder. You need to appoint men who have proven character, not simply charisma and gifting. You need to look for leaders, men and women in the church, who are leaders with high character, a proven pattern of humility and gentleness as those you lift up. That will guard you. So, in summary, I think we need to um, be really humble in the church to realize when Jesus gives authority to us, it's a real thing. We can't reject that it's true or real. And that presents, if it's real authority, the opportunity for us in a selfish human state to use that for ourselves. And so, hopefully by considering some of the scripture here, what we get is a better sense of how to use the authority God gives in the church, but also a sense of where we can avoid some of the excesses of this cultural moment that would rush to throw a label, a psychological label onto behavior that actually the Bible gives us maybe a little better categories to think on and to use. I hope in that there's some wisdom for you as you seek in whatever place you are, whether you're a pastor listening who has the authority over God's people or a parent with authority over your children, that you would use that authority to accomplish the mission of Jesus in the way of Jesus. And in so doing, you'd find the blessing of Jesus in that path of obedience. 